0: In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Tanya Pinkins, and you're listening to my podcast. You can't say that. It's the podcast where you can. On the Broadway Podcast Network. <laughs> This is called You Can't Say That, and sometimes people say things that you can't say, but, you know, pretty much we're pretty clean, but you never know. My next guest, I don't know. I mean, the conversations I've had with her. <laughs> but let me say, she is described on Wiki. got to say c- my name first. Oh, no, I don't. Okay. <laughs> you probably know who she is from her voice, but she's described as a serial cultural entrepreneur not a serial killer but a serial cultural entrepreneur and she is the founder and executive producer of On Guard Arts which was founded in 1985. Her name is Anne Hamburger she was the former executive vice president of Walt Disney Creative Entertainment, which she was the head of entertainment worldwide for the Disney Corporation. I may be lying. Um, and Disney she, Parks and Resorts. D- Disney Parks and Resorts. And she was prior to that, she was the head of the La Jolla Playhouse. For one year. For one year. See, she's straightening me out. And um, she's become a friend of mine. Um, so I'm very radically honest and, you know, I just got to say, you know, I met uh, Annie because we have a mutual friend, Annabelle Gerwich. And we met because our kids were trick-or-treating like, God, 10 or 15 years ago, right? And we had fun taking our kids trick-or-treating over Los Angeles, Los Feliz. Hey, Annie, welcome. Hi, how you doing? <laughs> I'm great. Good. I met you on the streets of L.A. That is true. Yes, we met on the streets of L.A. And then we would have a little lunch, have a little tea here and there. And Annie was like, you know... I'm going to say something really, really radical. I was a little suspicious. I was like, Annie, she ran Disney. Like, is she like into real art? I think you had producer suspicion. Definitely. I definitely had producer suspicion. I was like, she's going to have to prove it to me. And I am happy to say that the other day I saw a show of hers called Fandango for Coyotes and Butterflies, which blew me away.
1: It's Fandango for Butterflies and Coyotes, but the blew me away part's good.
0: Um, It blew me away, and I I saw another play uh, last night at the public called um, Cold Country which also is a very beautiful play, but I have to say that I thought yours was better and more important, and I probably ruined your opportunity of getting there because I told them that at the (laughs) end of it, and I got a bunch of cards to give to you for you to come, because like, this is good. This is good. Everything about this is really good, but this show that Annie is doing is even better, and you really should do it here because it is about the immigrants and the immigrant experience, and it leaves you with a good feeling at the resilience and the power of these people. So, Annie, I'm going to shut up and let you talk.
1: Well, um. Really thrilled to be doing this show. Um, I've been working on it for two and a half years. Um, I started Fandango for Butterflies and Coyotes by approaching Andrea Tome, a wonderful writer, and saying, The whole situation with undocumented immigrants in this country is plaguing me. I think this is a really important issue to tackle are you interested in developing a show with me around this? And she said yes. And she brought in Jose Zayas, who's a long-term collaborator with her to direct, and Sinway Padilla,
0: who
1: Tanya has sung with, who's an extraordinary artist, a dancer, a singer. He plays multiple instruments. He dances something called Zapateado. Join the team. When we first started out, uh, we interviewed Undocumented Immigrants, And we did a reading at Joe's Pub. And it wasn't very good.
0: And the reason why why it
1: it wasn't good was because we basically used verbatim text uh, to create the show. And we walked away from that experience and we said we really need to fundamentally grow, develop, and change this. And um, we had a we had a residency at the Orchard Project where you were as That's well. That's where
0: I, I met uh, the whole team, Andrea and Jose yeah. and Sinwei, and I actually sang in part of the little presentations at the Orchard Project.
1: Yes, and if you want to edit this podcast with some footage of you singing, I have it. Oh, wow, we could yeah. put a little music or you something can in there. We could put a little awesome. music, yeah. Anyway, so it it was there that we kind of had the brainchild of fundamentally shifting the construct of this so that Andrea would take the material as a basis and write a play and that the story at the center of the play was undocumented immigrants coming together on the night of an ice raid to seek solace by participating in a Fandango, Mm. which is a celebration of music and dance that hails from Spain and Mexico, that is often used in protests as well. That's
0: amazing because Cold Country is uh, one of those verbatim text pieces, and it's very moving. And I cried, and it was very, very powerful. Um, The thing I felt that was different about Fandango was um, I didn't feel sorry for the people not that I didn't have compassion for their suffering, but I felt inspired by their resilience and their strength and their bravery and their courage. And despite the outcomes that had for them, it was like, but these people are the people who are going to keep the world going. And and that I love. That was the part of it that I love. There's a nobility to the struggle of poor people. So that, you know, just moved me greatly.
1: Well, that was purposeful. Somebody told me a story once, a... Uh uh, actually it was Anne Bogart, who um, was commissioned by the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana to go and talk to some people in a um, kind of low-income neighborhood. And she sat in a circle with them, and she said to them, what kind of theater would you like to see? And they said, we want to see Dream Girls. And I thought that was really interesting because... People who are hungry don't want to see a play about not having enough food. Mm. People that are undocumented don't want to see a play that leaves them depressed. Mm. And I almost feel like as creative artists and intellectuals and people that almost all firmly lift, uh, live on the left side of politics, that we sometimes don't put the right kind of lens On the shows that we make by thinking, what would the person who is experiencing this
0: feel? But don't you think that's because those people aren't even going to be invited into the theater. They can't afford a ticket. So we're trying to give the lens for the rich people to feel like, oh, I've seen something.
1: And that's okay, too. You know, like I had somebody who's a colleague of mine who's a wonderful person in the arts. And she was like, you know, this propelled me to make me feel like I want to do something. So that was good. But then we've also had undocumented people come see the show that feel very uplifted and encouraged and understood by it. And, you know, what's fascinating about the process we're in right now, and unfortunately this podcast will probably air after the
0: show's over. But the show's coming back. It's coming to Queens. It's going to Brooklyn. Well, the show's doing the that
1: box. absolutely right now. I'm
0: like leaving here and going off to Queens. Okay. So. And where is it in Queens? It's at the La, LaGuardia Performing Arts Center. Tell us the whole place where it's going and what the run of that is so I can make sure this podcast gets out so people can know about it while it's running.
1: Yeah. So it's um, tonight and tomorrow night. It's at LaGuardia Performing Arts Center. And then um, w- after that, next Friday, week from Friday, we go to Snug Harbor Cultural Center. And then we go up to the Bronx. And for anyone who wants to follow the production schedule exactly, they can go on our website, guardarts.org um, E-N-G-A-R-D-E-A-R-T-S.org. But then we end up in Brooklyn at the Irondale theater the 26th 27th and 28th of March and literally every night we've done this we've gotten standing ovations mm. we've gotten wonderful reviews we're still waiting for our New York Times review to come out I do not know why it hasn't but all the rest of the papers have given us beautiful reviews and i um, really really proud of the piece and I would love this show to come back I would love it to return to a place like the public theater which would be perfect for it it's getting in touch with the public theater and getting them to see it. That's
0: always a challenge. So, Annie, why? Why are you, you know, I'm told that you are the person who sort of started devised theater. Is that true?
1: You know, it's actually not true.
0: Okay. What's Um, true? What
1: is true is that I started the site-specific theater movement. Site-specific. And I think the terms devised immersive Site specific are all commingled. They're actually very different.
0: Okay, um, tell us, clear
1: us so up. So basically, I started On Guard Arts and um, started. Arts because I felt that a real desire to use the city as our stage.
0: So we did, I brought a lot of artists who were then unknown. Now, let's just say you you have an MFA from Yale. So I have an you're not MFA like from just, Yale. you know, she came from Baltimore. She said, I'm going to make New York my stage.
1: No, I came from Yale. <laughs> I actually started, I actually started Angard Arts as my third year thesis project. Oh. So I went to that chairman of the department and I said, I don't want to write a paper about starting a theater. I want to start a theater. Mm. Well, he didn't think I was going to be able to do it. So Ben Mordecai, who passed away, mm. unfortunately a lovely man, and he said, Annie, your MFA will not be dependent upon your being successful because everybody at you Yale know, was kind of going, well, she's out of her mind. This will never happen, <laughs> which I've had said about me on many occasions. So in the very first site I tried to get was the Pierpont Morgan Library. I was very naive at the time. I sent a letter. I told her I wanted to use the entire Prime Oregon Library for a show. And she sent me – she got on the phone with me and she said, darling, we're not on guard, avant-garde, or any other kind of guard. We're not doing this.
0: <laughs> and you were not discouraged. I brushed
1: myself off and kept going. (laughs) And
0: who was next?
1: Uh, So um, then we did, with Michael Engler, a brief little show called The Ritual Project. Michael recently directed the movie Downton Abbey and is now doing a major TV series. Um, then we did a show called. But what did you
0: do with him? Because we, we got did, to know what was this first we site this specific piece that you had piece to do in Central Park. We didn't know what we were doing. And, and a, you're still trying to do your thesis because you're like not going to graduate if you don't. Yeah, yeah. So we did what it happened? with the
1: actors and costumes, and it was a wild, wacky, surrealistic show with these brightly colored costumes. And then um, we went on to do uh, our first kind of real serious production in an empty warehouse downtown when there were empty warehouses that you could get we're on uh, Lafayette Street and Spring Street called Terminal Bar by a writer named Paul Selig who's now become a world famous psychic. Wow, <laughs> okay. Um, and Michael Engler directed that one as well. It had Fisher Stevens and Roxanne Rogers in it. All these people who at the time were unknown And it was about the AIDS crisis. But the shows that really define the work I did during that time were the big outdoor productions that I did with Tina Landau and Anne Bogart what and were those Chuck shows? Mee and Mac Wellman. Those were the artists. So oh. um, Mac and I did a show in Central Park uh, on the Bow Bridge called Bad Penny. Um, that was really quite wonderful with Reggie Cathy, who unfortunately mm, passed away. Yeah,
0: yeah, Reggie.
1: And I think what defined these shows, they were plays. They were written plays by Extraordinary writers like Mac Wellman, and you know it's the T.S. Eliot of today. I yeah, think. and he
0: runs the Brooklyn. Well, uh, he did. Yeah,
1: he oh, ran. Did he just yeah. leave? Yeah, he's okay. retired now. But, got it. Um, and Chuck Me, who's like got an extraordinary facility with language. Um, so we combined these plays with directors who not only know how to work with great actors, but also have extraordinary visual. Uh, chops visual sensibilities understand design as not just a set and on a proscenium stage but understand design as how you work with visuals on a scale as high as you can see now, you know why as high as the specific?
0: sky why site specific where does this even come from and did you have it in a dream like <laughs> what were you eating some popcorn and you're like oh you know what i'm gonna do my my play so on the street. i started
1: off as a performance artist and an environmental sculpture. What is that sculptor. mean? That was like a 19 that was like a long time ago. Anyway. But no, so. I want to know. You were okay. 19
0: and you were doing performance so art sculpture?
1: I was. So, what I would do is I would make I would design these fabric sculptures that took up whole rooms, and then I would write scripts and I would direct them and I would act in them.
0: And solo the, pieces, the Cindy Sherman of the theater.
1: Some solo, some I worked with other people. Um, and I, I like made a beautiful blue translucent tent that I performed with and I made fabric sculptures that literally took up gal that were in, in huge galleries I mean talk about things you're not supposed to say um, When I was doing performance artwork, I needed 25 yards of fabric for one show that I was doing that had three concentric circles made of muslin fabric. I shouldn't even say this. Tell us. Oh, it's good, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I was teaching in prison at the time. I was teaching um, drawing and painting and ceramics in prison. And I befriended an accountant who was in prison because he had embezzled... funds, (laughs) funds, <laughs> uh, and he was making mattresses right across the street from my classroom. In the prison? Uh-huh. Okay. Um, and the prison used to piss me off because they always would, like, prevent me from bringing things in, like scissors and glue and things like that I needed for my class because they were worried about things like scissors and glue.
0: With With good reason. So- well, it just kind of annoyed
1: me. So okay. um, yeah. the accountant said that if I needed twenty five years of mu- twenty five yards of muslin, he would give them to me. So I took great pride in actually being able to walk out you of the prison. You smuggled
0: twenty five sm- yards of muslin okay. out of the prison
1: for my art. Okay, it was okay. for my art. Okay. So that's one of It probably you was can't a felony,
0: but, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope the statute of limitations is run. <laughs> I hope so. 1976, are they going to come after me? I hope not. So you smuggle out the muslin yeah, to make this piece. Yeah, and did my piece.
1: show. So I, because I come from the visual arts world, I've always been highly conscious of theater as a medium that's not just about the spoken word. Mm. And the great Morgan Jeunesse always says you know, we have we, we we function under the I forget now what she says, but it's kind of wonderful what she says, but it's about like the, you know, that the spoken word is not the only way that we want to tell stories. Right. You know, we can tell stories visually through design, through music, through dance. Um... And, of course, through The Spoken Word. But all of these things combine to tell a story. And very often, the way we develop work is we get a play. We read the play. A director gets the play. The director directs the play. The director puts the play on the stage. And in some ways, that's great. That's not what I do. Okay. I start off with an idea. I assemble an artistic team. We kind of do the research necessary, especially with documentary theater, to exploit that idea over time. And let something take shape. It's the riskiest. I mean,
0: every life in the theater is risky. Yeah, but you don't have anything to say, here's the play. You're putting your money in this piece of paper. People are putting their money in this idea that's in your head.
1: Right hoping and you just
0: hope it's going to be good,
1: right? <laughs> you pray it's going to be good because there were times when Fandango wasn't good, and oh, now it's it, process, and now it's great. You know, I always find with creating work, there's like a period of time when you develop work from scratch. I find there's always a period of time where it feels like muck, and then there's a period of time where even if it's funny, it's no longer funny, mm. and. As a creative producer, I try to be involved in the process like, uh, but also re- retain enough distance to be able to be of service to the artists and objectives so that I can come in and say, maybe you need to look at this this way, this way, or this way. And obviously gaining the trust of artists is paramount. But back to... So I started working with Anne Bogart when I was a visual artist. And she, at the time, in the late 70s, um, was doing all this environmental theater with a company of actors. I was in her company as an actor because I was transitioning from performance art to theater until so in transitioning, I was like, well, okay, now what do I want to be? Do I want to be a writer? Do I want to be a director? Do I want to be an actor? So for a period of time, I was acting. And... Um, We would go all over the city and do these shows in an empty school building on the Lower East Side. Um, I found a detective office on 42nd Street back when there was a whole lot of empty property on 42nd Street. And Anne has this incredible facility to... Stage performers, so they're framed in windows or Mm. doorways or on the street in beautiful ways. She's as much choreographer as director, um, and you can now see that with the aesthetics she's developed over the years with the City Company and Mm. the Viewpoints. This was before then. And I was so moved by looking at my surroundings in a completely different way by virtue of the fact that there were scenes unfolding in relationship to doorways and buildings and windows. And it so fed into my own visual theater aesthetic that also came from, you know, studying about environmental Sculpture and, you know, earthworks and all of that, that it kind of keyed right into what I deemed important. And I've always, what's been a through line my entire career is really thinking about how to bring theater goers together with people who are affected by the subject matter at hand. Mm. So when people say to me, who's it for? I always say it's for both those groups of people, like how it's very hard. Is that like Peter of the Oppression kind of thing? Well, no, because, well, I don't, I'm not that familiar with their work, but no, I believe in crafting well thought out, professional, nuanced pieces like Fandango, but it's in how you think about community engagement and marketing and outreach. And 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 who are the partners that you create from the day you start a show Mm. so that you get those people in the door? Because those partnerships take a lot of time and a lot of energy. And I think the mistake that a lot of theater people make is they'll, they'll make a play about whatever, climate change, whatever. And then two weeks before they open, they start calling all the climate change companies and saying, come in the door, come in the door, come in the door. And they're like, who the hell are you? So I think... You know, what is most valuable is when one's take, tackling a subject that's important to people today, that you, st- and at the same time that you're going, I want to make a piece about climate change, I want to make a piece about undocumented immigrants, that you start from the very beginning developing relationships with social service organizations and communities that are going to trust you over time, so then they will get in the door. But it's still very, very hard like if la it was mama easy,
0: everyone would do it
1: right la mama we were at la mama for eight performances we had a beautiful feature in the new york times we sold out every single performance mm. we had a sta- we had a standing ovation on first preview mm. when the audience jumped to their feet at the end of the first preview i just put my head in my hands and wept I have never in 35 years of producing had a standing ovation for a first preview. Mm. Normally, it sucks, right? Mm. So I was so moved by the fact that that happened. We sold out every performance. So now... Tonight, we're going to be at LaGuardia Performing Arts Center. And we found, and that's a venue. So La Mama was 180 seats. LaGuardia is 60 seats. And we are giving away 50% of the tickets. Okay. Because
0: there's a different community trying to find an audience there, yeah?
1: Yep. And I'm And then they're going to want you to come back more. I'm fine with that, you know. But if, and then we're going to Staten Island next week. And we may end up giving away... All of the
0: tickets. So how how could we get this word out more for people in Staten Island? Are there organizations? Like, what's the way to do it? I literally am going tomorrow with Gabriel Torres,
1: my Latinx community engagement consultant, and we are driving to Staten Island with postcards. Okay. And we are knocking on the doors of churches and community centers. Okay. That is literally what we are doing tomorrow. So- because they don't read the New York Times, you know.
0: Absolutely,
1: and we have been in touch with the, we're doing Snug Harbor Cultural Center, and we've been in touch with some of these organizations that serve undocumented immigrants. But it is extremely difficult to convert non-theater goers mm. into theater goers.
0: Mm. It Why is. do you do this, Annie? Tough. Why? Why do you do? It? You can you can retire now and sit ew. back and wait to be a grandma. Like, what do you mean? Ooh, I go nuts. Why would you go nuts?
1: Because I love being busy. I'm so you, you love alcoholic. the hard.
0: You love the hard. I
1: love the. Ho- no, I love. <laughs> I love the hard. The only thing I don't love is how hard it is to raise money.
0: But so that's like that kind anyone
1: of... out there is interested.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's sugar
1: daddies. My <laughs> phone
0: number. Oh, you turned down the sugar daddies. <laughs> I know. So it depends on what the bargain is. <laughs> Artistically only. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry. Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh. Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play
1: for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes.
0: ChumbaCasino.com. by law. Website for details. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind.
1: Oh, God. My mother saved my third grade report card. I still have it. It's hysterical. The teacher's like, Anne is a daydreamer if she would only pay attention in class. You know, I'm a rule breaker. I have been my whole life. You know, as a little kid, I'm sure that was a big pain in the ass Mm. to my parents, but... I've always been kind of an excitement junkie, a rule breaker, curious about parts of the world I didn't know anything about. I mean, you know, when you say, kid, is it age six? Is it age
0: 21? No, let's go to age six, like this third grader who is like daydreaming. Does it yeah. mean you're failing third grade?
1: I, I didn't. <laughs> no, I didn't fail. But I do have this. the comments from the teacher, which were hysterical, you know. And unfortunately – so I had a mother who was manic depressive, now they call it bipolar, and I, it was tough because as a ch- young child, I kind of had to take care of her, mm-hmm. so she would kind of lie in bed, the, the lights to her bedroom would be off, she'd be under the covers, and there's 10 years difference between my sister and I, and somehow I was anointed with the role of being the only one that could talk to my mother. Mm. So my mother would go through one of these bouts, and then my father would say, Anne, go in and talk to, your, to her. Or my sister would say, Anne, go in and talk to her. And the problem with that is I was a child. Right? So, so how did you do it? I climbed up on her bed, and I patted her face. And I said, Mommy, it'll be okay. But what happened with that is that from a very young age, I felt that I needed to take care of her. Mm. So that was tough. So what? This I- sounds like
0: my life. I'm not going to let you leave from here because my mother was—I don't even know—schizophrenic, psychotic, and so I was the adult, <clears throat> you know, very, very early on. Um, and I remember—I mean, she was probably schizophrenic before what they call a nervous breakdown that I was witness to, which I guess you also call a psychotic break. But like, I remember standing behind her; she was sitting in her room and I was flashing a flashlight on the wall and going, and she got up and started screaming and chasing me around the house. And we had this house where you could go around in circles and I thought it was a game we were playing. And then my grandmother came home and, you know, they took her away and I didn't see her for many, many months. Um, so, you know, I can relate to that idea. But my mother was always a very hard person. There was nobody was going to take care of her. She was a person who was always going to be pushing you away. But, you know, yeah, I was having to take care of her by paying the bills and picking up the pieces of that.
1: Well, my mother thought it was a good idea. My, before I was born, my mother tried to kill herself three times. Mm. My mother thought it was a good idea when I was in elementary school. I think I was probably in fourth grade or fifth grade to bring me to the mental institution where she was and have me visit the D ward to see where she was institutionalized. Clearly, that's a very stupid thing to do with a child. But what happened? So she took me there. Okay. Um, I remember it like it was yesterday. Tell us. What was that? And we went into this place where, I don't even know if this exists anymore, but I remember there was a woman who was catatonic who was sitting there with her arms poised, in the air, like frozen, Mm -hmm. and the nurse went over and pushed her arm down because they, I don't know what happens to the brain, but, and it terrified me, Oh, uh, clearly. I mean, I think what, well, it's kind of, so, I mean, a couple things about that. Um, I think art saved my life. Actually, I think um, definitely save mine. The fact that I could, when I was home, go down into the basement. There was a closet where I kept my art supplies and I would draw and I would turn furniture upside down and I would make up stories. I think if I hadn't been a naturally creative person who could construct these whole worlds, uh, I don't know what would have happened to me. I think what's interesting is like I I've somehow thought back about the connective tissue with like going into a mental institution in fourth grade and doing site specific work. <laughs> there somehow seems to be some the synthesis in your brain, heightened consciousness uh-huh. between emotional reality, creative reality, and physical structures as containers of information, of content. I mean, I do think they're connected somehow. Um, I do think my desire to go teach in prison, I think it's kind of of a a thing. And Mm -hmm. I think, you know, like Fandango for Butterflies and Coyotes... You know, yes, you're watching it, but you also get up at the end and you participate, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm always thinking about how to – and I have all my life thought about, you know, how do we deal with personal space? Um, How does our own personal space relate to the spaces we create within or, you know, when it was outdoors, the the space was – I mean, we closed off – in the early days of Arts, I Arts, I brought Reza Abdo to New York City, kind of an enfant terrible Iranian director who unfortunately passed away of AIDS. And Reza, and we closed off four square blocks of the Meatpacking District and did a piece <sighs> called Father Was a Peculiar Man with 60 performers and a marching band and a <gasps> table that went three-quarters of the way down Little West 12th Street with oh a meat God. cleaver and a chandelier that hung across the street. So we did these shows. You could not do today but that's so fantastic you couldn't do it you couldn't why couldn't we do it today 9 11 happened Mm. and i would say things that we i mean the the actors union would never let us do any of this you know if we were doing it with union actors so a lot of what we did i mean when i did arrestees with tina landau jefferson mays was arrestees amazing performer who then become, became well-known for I Am My Own Wife and right. other things. So, I mean, I feel very fortunate that I've been able to have such a wealth of creative experiences that have really lasted my whole life in different ways. But and the point I'm is that you have ideas, going.
0: that you have these ideas, and these ideas that germinate inside the mind of this little girl who went to the D-Ward, um has magnetized all these artists because there's some seed of something in there that's exciting all these artists to want to make with you this is tanya pinkins thanks for listening to part one of my conversation with Anne hamburger of on arts stay tuned for part two 18 plus.